being on the doorstep twice a week for four hours a week does at least ground you in the how people are thinking about you. The reason I've always kept that going is I think it does give you that emotional connection to people that does inform the sort of policy making that we might do. And I think it's a, it's a gap in politics. Richard Bruton, you're very welcome to the Insights Podcast with Sean O'Rourke. You have recently announced at the age of 70, a very lively 70 it has to be said, that you're leaving politics at the next general election. You've been a cabinet minister for I think a total of 12 years. You've been in Dáil Éireann continuously since February 1982, a most remarkable achievement in modern times. I think only one other TD shares that distinction, Willie O'Dea of Fianna Fáil in Limerick. And you have something else in common I think with Willie O'Dea though. He may be more famous or more notorious for it. Uh, you just love knocking on people's doors. You're an inveterate canvasser. I am indeed. I suppose I started out politics in the local authorities in, in County Mead and that's where I discovered the merit of knocking on people's doors. So I'd say I have uh, knocked on people's doors twice a week for two hours. That's four hours a week for the last 42 years. So I have a fair number of doors knocked. There isn't a dog in the constituency that I don't know are have been bitten by the odd one. You actually did the maths on it at one stage, Richard, in regard to the number of doors and the number of leaflets. I think I did. It was actually when one of my greatest supporters died, which was a woman who would canvas through thick and thin in the good times and the bad times. And it was for her funeral uh, that I put together a tot of the number of leaflets she had dropped and the number of steps she had walked with me. But I regret to say I, the number escapes me at this stage. I, I, I read a piece you wrote. You reckoned you had knocked on, would it have been 1.5 million doors? I would say that's a, and, an underestimate. And five million leaflets? <laughs> At least, yes. Um, that probably wouldn't be politically correct any longer. I mean, we think of the litter and we think of recycling and all that. Uh, yeah, I think, though, old style has kept me going. I mean, I remember in 2002 when the tide went out for Fine Gael, I was one of the ones that was left standing and I would put down a lot of that, uh, you know, door knocking. It didn't mean I got ones and twos, but I might have got a 12 or a 13 preference when that was the difference between being eliminated and, and hanging on. You've, uh, only, you've only lost one election. That was the local elections of, was it 1984 or 85? 85, yeah. No, that was, um, Garrett was very keen that I should contest in the Artane ward, which it has always been a difficult ward and it's, a lot of it was outside of my constituency and the then Lord Mayor Michael O'Halloran was, you know, striding the field. I didn't believe I'd win, but uh, Garrett was determined that I should contest it and it didn't go very well. But I suppose as these things turn luck, as it says, big thing in politics. The reason I'd say I got a junior minister at the end of Garrett's term was probably in recognition that I had got a bit of a bloody nose in that contest. So. Interestingly, because at the McGill Book of Politics of 1984, it noted, I just happened to come across it yesterday, that having been a councillor in Mead and a senator, you transferred your political attentions to Dublin North Central in February 82. And it says, when George Birmingham's skillful vote management got you elected. Yeah, it's, well, it's a complex story that it was, as you probably remember, Noel Brown decided not to contest the election and that was a week into uh, a sudden election. 
and uh, I don't know whether Dublin Bay North was determined to get an economist, but they had a choice between uh, the left corner back for Dublin, which was Robbie Kelleher, and myself. Uh, this is Fine Gael in, in Dublin North Central, as it then was. Yeah, yeah. Paddy Jennings, one of formerly of your school here, uh, was the chairman of Fine Gael at the time. He used to do On the Land. You might remember that programme. I was sitting in... Robbie Kelleher's living room waiting to see would Robbie go and if he wasn't going to go I was going to go so that was two weeks into the campaign so it was luck is such a a, a strange thing in politics I was available I was a senator and Noel Brown stepping down opened the, the door and for me. it was a fear of all stronghold I think it would be true to say and yourself and George Birmingham I think was it at the subsequent election you pulled off an almost impossible feat we did, yeah. No, I think it has been bested since in, in, in Loud, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But with 24%, uh, we got two seats. Um, I suppose those times, like Fianna Fáil would have had 55% plus probably around that time. So they had an extraordinary uh, dominance. And I think Charlie certainly expected to get three. But the two little whippersnappers uh, <laughs> managed, not entirely by design, to come across the line with, with uh, two seats. I think there was an anti Charlie vote and a pro-Charlie vote and even though the pro-Charlie vote was larger than the anti one there was still enough to get half the seats for the anti and, and, and fair play for George, to George for welcoming you into the constituency where it, it was obviously going to be fairly tight it didn't stay that way that you were both able to be elected there was a bit of needle I think between you to be fair to say well, yeah, that was a very hotly contested uh, election in 87 uh, and there was a flurry of leaflets going round with different instructions and counter-instructions. We got across the line on that occasion, but I suppose the following election, which was, you know, 89, things weren't as, as good for us. We fell by the wayside at that stage. Well, uh, who's this we now? <laughs> well, I survived and George unfortunately didn't, so I... I don't know whether he regards that the cu- a cuckoo in the nest <laughs> that came in and uh, he but that was the way it worked out I think George at that stage was taking more interest in the law um, so he 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 you know, I, he went on to have a very successful career, both at the bar and indeed on the bench yeah. afterwards. Um, but you mentioned about uh, being in the constituency with Charles Hohey. I mean, what, what was that like? Because, sorry, before we talk about that, I mean, is it true that you almost went to work for him? Yeah, like I never tangled with him. And that was a strange thing. It was, now, it was earlier when he was Minister for Health and I was uh, a, a, an economist, uh, had been in the SRI. Uh, he did offer me a job. Now, it didn't come to pass in the finish. I, w- I was away for a month or more and it didn't, didn't materialise. Did, did he know your political pedigree? I never knew. Like, I didn't have a personal interview with him. I just got the ask, would I be interested yeah. in this post? Uh, I know he was a, he was an unusual man. I mean, he strode the, the stage in, in Dublin, well, Dublin North Central, as it was. Uh, I can still picture him coming down. He'd be standing at the base of the steps in Donny Carney Church and a sea of people would come out and they would mill around him uh, and we would be handing out our leaflet in a drafty corner trying to <laughs> see would we get one or two to come our way. Uh, so he, you know, he was a great operator. Um, so I didn't tangle with him, but he he didn't impress my wife uh, on the occasion we were going to one of these summer festivals. They were all 
all the rage those times. And we, of course, proud parents with our first baby in the pram. And Charlie came over, looked in and said, nothing special and walked on, (laughs) (laughs) which was a joke from his point of view. But (laughs) not too sure Sue was that impressed. And hell had no fury like a mum with a firstborn in the pram. (laughs) Absolutely. Then just looking at your CV as well, you mentioned the SRI. I mean, the one thing that jars slightly, perhaps, is that you spent you spent a couple of years working for PJ Carroll and Sons, uh, the cigarette manufacturers. I did. I did. Uh, well, not a couple of years. I was six months with them. I worked initially with the tobacco part and then I was with their Cattle Roberts, which was their um, their pharmaceutical uh, company. PJ Carroll's was a it was the old Don Carroll was quite a progressive guy. It was an interesting company to spend six months in. Then I went on to um, Roadstone and subsequently Cement Roadstone. Jimmy Culleton was the was the great man there, man of the Culleton Report in the 1980s about industrial policy reform. So, but I suppose I could see that being a, an economist in a private company, I didn't find it that fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, and it was it's interesting that, I mean, you were still a young man when you came to politics, but like unlike your brother, John, he went in at the age of 22, I think, when he was elected. Uh, you got some some real life business and real world experience uh, ahead of going into politics. Was there always your intention, though, to, to go for electoral politics? I mean, what was the family background? Was it was a highly was it a highly political family? Uh, Political was a small p. Like my father was very actively engaged in farming politics. He was uh, in the NFA at the time, and there was a big actual dispute with Charlie Hawhey. You probably remember that too, with the farmers uh, on the streets protesting. And uh, he was very uh, active in in a lot of areas. He had a very strong belief that party politics had destroyed every farming organisation that ever was established in Ireland. So he never knocked on a door or dropped a leaflet for either. John or myself so he stayed clear of politics yeah no so he was very much committed to progressive farming he wrote an article in the in the farmer's journal nearly every week he he used to work here uh, with Paddy Jennings on the land that was funny the way the world goes around and so he used to present programs here for a short time so but he, did it, did he did he believe that were he to canvas for you or for John that it would somehow uh, encroach on his credibility as an IFA representative yeah uh, that was basically it uh, and he felt that you know he he wanted to be seen as independent and fair to all sides and he was that you know, I'm because, sure he gave John the number one but he I'm probably sure couldn't he vote for you but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly oh no there's no question that he wouldn't be supporting us but never actively and he was probably right you know what did Brendan be in say the first item on the agenda is the split you know to some degree I'd say a lot of farming organisations have, have, have suffered that not just farming organisations Yeah um, but w- was it always your intention though to no, as no, it, it wasn't. No, following I, John's footsteps. No, it wasn't. Like I had gone into, you know, I had done um, a postgraduate degree in economics after the SRI, and uh, you know, I had, I went back to the SRI on a second occasion, but I just, I suppose, I was interested in policy. Uh, I didn't find writing stuff that satisfying, and I preferred to try to get into the arena, as Roosevelt would say, you know, and try my hand at. Uh, you know, the cut and thrust of actually 
implementing policy as opposed to talking about it and making worthy recommendations that gather dust. You, you, you served your time, as you say, on the backbenches. Then you got the break from Garrett as a junior minister. And then Fianna Fáil came back uh, in various guises initially as a minority government, then with the PDs. Charlie Hawhey was deposed. Albert Reynolds took over, that government fell apart. And then you found yourself in government in the early 90s, well, sorry, the, the mid-90s, 1994, uh, late 94, and your brother was Taoiseach. Did you, have, did you have to call him Taoiseach even in private meetings? No, no, I, I was never great for, for titles. Uh, even still, uh, I, I find it a little bit hard to call anyone teacher or minister. But it was, I suppose it was the first time ever two brothers had been in cabinet, so it was making history in one way. I suppose politics, you know, at cabinet level is quite formulaic. You know, you, you produce your memos uh, and so on. Uh, but one thing I would say... You have to have the Taoiseach in your corner if you're trying to implement any serious level of change. Um, you know, if you're not biting with the president's teeth, so to speak, uh, you, you're facing an uphill battle. Uh, so it's really important to have, uh, and, you know, I've always had the Taoiseach of the day in my corner. Yeah, I, I wondered about that in the case of yourself and John. I mean, I was uh, taught by my father and I thought it was an unfortunate thing because I you know, I had to endure a certain amount of bullying or at least attempted bullying. And it was probably not good for him and not good for me. But, you know, I'm wondering, it might be something of a kind of a parallel working close with your sibling in government? I mean, were you seen as somebody who was protected or maybe you had to try harder because you were his brother? I don't think he either. I think I sort of established my credentials to some degree in my own right, um, like having been a junior minister, although Johnny Boland described that as being made third mate on the Titanic at the time. <laughs> but, you know, it did give me a little bit of experience. Um, I had, you know, done a lot of stuff on the front bench. I, I was an economist in my own right, which was, you know, a valuable enough asset in, in the employment industry and commerce as it was then. I think I had credentials. Um, and it was the other thing, you know, John was six years older than me, so... I don't think we had that sort of sibling rivalry because there was such a, 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 a you know a gap in years. Were you confident when he became Taoiseach that you would be in cabinet? Well, you're never confident, but I suppose I felt that you know within the front bench at the time I probably was a, a very strong contender uh, with what I could bring to the party. But uh, politics is is luck. I mean, the the fact that we were in government in 1994 when, you know, in 92, the Labour Fianna Fáil coalition was deemed to be a, a government that could go on for decades. Uh, and suddenly we found ourselves, you know, within in government within two and a half years. So, you know, these, you, you don't build uh, very clear yes, and, and career John pathways in politics. They, he they're full of twists and turns. He probably thought he was a goner because Labour were all set to go in with Bertie Ahern after Albert Reynolds had left, after that government fell apart. We don't have time to go into the ins and outs, but even if we could remember them. Um, but then something happened between Labour and Fine Gael, uh, sorry, between Labour and Fianna Fáil. And then Dick Spring 
turned to John Bruton and to Prunchester Rossa. Yeah, that, that was the thing. I mean, things had ch- changed, I suppose. Um, earlier on, you know, in 92, there had been this uh, attempt to put together a, a coalition with uh, Labour and Fine Gael, but the numbers didn't stack up. It would have been a mar- minority government that time and the election had won only four seats but by the time the, the uh, 94 came they'd actually won a number of by-elections so there was a, a, there was a stronger it was a stronger base and we had worked with DL in, in in opposition so you know the chemistry of putting that together was much easier than it had been in 92 and I think both leaders the three leaders I think saw this as a a coalition that we need to make work uh, and a lot of effort was put in individually by all three of them to make it work. And I think the fact that there were three created a glue that if it had been two, it had been much more difficult. There would be much more conflict, but there was always, you know, someone to defuse the rows and make it um, a good government. And, you know, John worked very hard to make that government work and developed you know, structures, which might have been criticised, you know, the handlers and all the rest of, you know, people who were... The programme managers, programme managers, I think, was the yeah, innovation The programme there. managers, yeah, who who did seek to defuse uh, rows that might otherwise have bubbled up. So it was, it was a very successful government, but unfortunately didn't succeed with the electorate yeah. in the subsequent <clears throat> election. And then came... 14 long years in opposition for you, followed by it. Well, now the present government in which Fine Gael has been dominant has been there for 14 years again, or will have if it goes the full term. And I want to come back in a few minutes to talk to you about some of your own ministerial uh, portfolios. Uh, but before that, I, I want to talk to you about Fine Gael, you know, the way it, it did its business. I mean, it struck me again, thinking about this, that being leader of Fine Gael is one of the most hazardous positions in Irish politics, if not European politics. If you just think about it, I mean, OK, there was a smooth handover uh, from Gareth to Alan Jukes. He was then taken out after three and a half years. Then came John Bruton, who was in turn taken out by the, the dream team, as it was called, uh, Michael Noonan and uh, Jim Mitchell. And then that most assuredly did not go well. You lost 20 seats in an election. Michael Noonan resigned, replaced by Andy Kenny, who defeated yourself, Phil Hogan and Gay Mitchell. And then you had another go at yourself in, in, in 2010. So is it true to say that it is one of the most hazardous positions in politics, leader of Fine Gael? Yeah, I suppose it is. When we're not in government, it is, um, it is a difficult position to hold down. I think it's a bit like uh, supporters of of uh, Liverpool or Arsenal, they always think they should be winning the league. Uh, and if you're not winning the league, uh, you know people are 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 saying something is wrong. Um, so you know, obviously, things went against us. Uh, f- you know, after '97, I suppose there would have been a, a hope that we could have done better. We didn't thrive in the polls uh, after the election. Um, it is hard to be a centrist party in opposition at times, you know, and I think that that has been a, a feature. Um, so, you know, the focus then turns on leadership uh, inevitably because um, politics is becoming more and more presidential in in the way it's presented. Yeah, so it is, it's, a, it's a difficult job, yeah. I mean, you were, you were involved, obviously, in campaigning for John to get him elected, but also, I mean, there was a no-confidence motion, if I recall, put on by Austin DC. Um, Fianna Fáil were halfway through that first Bertie Ahern term as Taoiseach. Um, and it was quite vicious. I mean, Family at War was the name of the documentary 
series made about it. Yeah, no, it was a tough time. I mean, it was after Gard left. There had been, you know, unresolved leadership issues. You know, Alan went in too soon. Probably too soon. Peter Barry might have been the one who who, who people felt, uh, and then you know things weren't going well. And then there was the bad presidential election, and then there was a change. And I think when you're sort of bobbing along at a low base in the polls, people get restive, um, and uh, you know inevitably leadership issues come up. Now, whether we're different from any other party, I, I don't know. I, I, I suspect, you know, traditionally Fianna Fáil had much greater discipline around uh, their their system. We were always a, a looser coalition of interests. But, you know, at times, too, you know, these things have to be challenged. You know, leadership issues come up. Um, I've always regarded them as business. So, like... In either leadership, I have never fallen out with with Enda, for example. So there, you know, I think you have to learn to manage these sort of tensions. Uh, yeah, I mean, you 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 contested, as I mentioned, with Gay Mitchell and Phil Hogan the time Enda won after Michael Noonan resigned in in two thousand and two, and then he was leader. He built up the party, didn't get across the line in two thousand and seven. Perhaps fortunately. Uh, indeed, yeah, no, I think that we we dodged a bullet there. Um, you know, had we, a lot of the problems were 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 growing at that stage. I mean, I had been spokesman on finance for uh, you know a lot of that period, and you could see, you know, after we joined the European um, Monetary System and it was joined a hard currency mm-hmm. regime, we weren't managing uh, our affairs like a hard currency regime should. We were losing export market share. The building sector was getting out of control. And that was it was precisely at that time that uh, Fine Gael were still, as you say, bobbing along in the polls when you should have been scoring high high numbers, but it was the time when Labour were talking about Gilmore for Taoiseach and uh, that unnerved you and colleagues. Yeah, at that stage we, we weren't, you know, there was a huge difficulty growing. The, the, the bubble had burst and we weren't making the progress that, that we expected. Uh, and, you know, I believed it was time to, you know, have a, 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 a decision about whether we were well led and whether we were going in the right direction. Were you pushed into it? No, no, I believed that, you know, we, we were having difficulties and that we needed to confront this. And, you know, I've, I offered myself as an alternative. Uh, it would have been, a, you know, a different type of leadership. Uh, but, you know, people made the decision. I think the party was stronger for having had the contest. Um, In hindsight, I suppose that that's a, that's a, fair, a fair and an accurate observation. But I'm wondering to what extent you yourself had prepared the ground. I mean, were you somebody who quote-unquote wasted time with backbenchers or to use the, the observation Seamus Brennan made about Charlie Hockey. Charlie made it his business to find out or PJ Mara on his behalf where the backbenchers itched so that Charlie could scratch. I mean, did you try any of that? Well, I, I was obviously well aware of the, you know, the undercurrent for change and, um, you know, clearly I was in a position as deputy leader and with certain skills and and so on to offer an alternative. Um, and I felt it was right to to do that. I suppose people might say uh, I could have been cuter or had more guile uh, in managing the campaign. But I suppose I always feel when you're taking on something like that, it is a bit like a siege. You know, it's very difficult to oust a, a sitting leader. Yeah. 
I remember Mickey Hart saying, you know, when you lose uh, by a point, it doesn't mean you've done everything wrong. And when you win, it doesn't mean you've done everything right. But, you know, losers do not write history. And I'm not going to try and write it now. But, uh, you know, so you, you small margins, which that, that leadership uh, was decided upon, doesn't mean that either Enda had driven a, a magnificent campaign or I had, you know, had a disastrous but one. It's just you, lost on the day. Yeah, but I, it suggested to me that uh, you were surprised and it's been written that you were surprised that when you went to Andy Kenny to suggest to him that he make way for another leader, that he had failed effectively as leader. You were surprised that he sacked you as deputy leader and finance spokesman. No, well, I was. I wasn't surprised that he didn't step down. Obviously, he decided to do to do that, and you know that was a, a clever move that he made. I don't think that you didn't anticipate. Well, I think I probably didn't anticipate the change that that would mean in terms of um, being able to present the case. You know, your case, but you know, it was a, a clever move. But it wasn't if like that wasn't an instrument that was available to me. It goes back to the sort of the difference between you know being in possession. Uh, possession is nine tenths of the law, as they say. But you know, I'm not saying we didn't make mistakes. One of the things about me, I never dwell on mistakes of the past. I keep moving on. I'm blessed with a short memory. So, you know, the main regret I'd have is having let down some people who supported me and who subsequently, you know, whose career didn't go as well afterwards. Yeah, uh, there'd be that, people that, like Michael Creed and Charlie Flanagan who both ultimately made it to cabinet with Andy Kenny, but they had a long wait. <laughs> People like Billy Timmons never had a, a lucky a day's look after that, and he had been a, a front bench spokesperson. And whereas you went straight back onto the front bench, I mean, maybe you abandoned them to some extent, did you? The people who had backed you? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think Finnegale make a decision and you move on. What's the alternative that you go sulking into the corner with a group of people who are very discontent and you create the family at war that you just described? Um, you know, I'm ultimately uh, committed to the party. I want to see the success of the party. I decided, um, not the easiest of decision, but I decided that <clears throat> I should go back into the front bench and do my best uh, for the party and, you know, worked for success in the subsequent election. And as it transpired, I, I, and it gave me the opportunity to be a, a minister in the subsequent government. So, you know, I, I made that call. I think it was the right call. Um, you know, I think the party has been the better. Uh, did, did it ultimately cost you the finance portfolio, one that I, I've absolutely no doubt that you would have revelled in. You reckon you would have been good enough. If you thought you were good enough to be Taoiseach, surely you would have been a good Minister of Finance, at least in your own mind. But Michael Noonan came back, the old uh, the old prize fighter, took on the finance portfolio in opposition and in government. And then the baton was passed on to, to Pascal Donoghue. Yeah, but was that the price you paid? I don't see it as a price. I mean, I got a very good job as Minister for Enterprise and Employment at a time when that was the key issue. And I put in place a strategy, the Action Plan for Jobs, which I think most people recognise was uh, a major contributor to you know the bounce back very quickly of, our, of our, our economy. So, you know, I always take the view, you know, you can't 
replay the match you just lost. <laughs> you go out and play the, the next match that's And I suppose Michael Luna could equally say, look, his luck turned down and it turned exactly, back up exactly. again. I mean, no, these I, are the swings and roundabouts. Exactly. That's the way politics is. You know, you just have to take the breaks that come and, and make the best of them and uh, move on. I remember the, the late Hugh Coveney when Hugh died. Uh, that was one of the things that Simon said of Hugh that he always said never a backward glance. And, you know, I think that carries you a distance in politics. You just, you know, you, you have to have an ability to forget what went behind, uh, behind not have personal grudges. Uh, and I don't, I'm, uh, you know, maybe that's a, a fault. Is it part of your makeup an inability to carry a grudge? I think I've inherited that from my father. You know, I think he was, they used to call him Solid Joseph. <laughs> you know, he he was always, you know, he would keep bobbing back up. Uh, yeah, I think it is part of my makeup. I, I, I have friends across the political spectrum. I'm not a partisan politician in the sense of attacking. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember, I know I'm jumping back a little bit, but it, it's the nature of these conversations, talking about friends across the political spectrum. Michael McDowell, I mean, it was the most unlikely comparison. He compared you to Dr. Goebbels. I think you had a bit of a spat about the number of Gardaí assigned in the Dublin region. And, yeah, it was um, a little bit more complicated than that. It was about detection rates and... How how successful policing was being, uh, and so on. Yeah, no, but that there was a row. And he 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 compared you to a Dr. Goebbels, and uh, this caused a lot of uh, amazement and annoyance. But he gave you a very gracious apology to the point where he said, like it had lost, he had it had cost him some sleep, and that uh, if he had been in your position, he might have employed precisely the same arguments. <laughs> I know that he probably comes from the same school of analytics or whatever as I do. You know. I suppose you, these things happen. It would probably was a blessing for me. It gave me a level of publicity that probably the statement would never have achieved had it been ignored. He 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 overstepped the mark. Yeah, and and that brings me to so, to a point you made, and maybe you'd like to 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 consider it now or expand on it. You were talking to Pat Leahy in the Irish Times after you announced that you weren't going forward again. You said politics is much more about emotion than about evaluating evidence uh, or analytics, maybe. You're, you're asking me, you said to him, what I've learned from politics, it's trying to harness that emotional piece that is so much at the heart of politics with the stuff you have to get done. That's what we can be good at. I do absolutely believe that. I mean, the, there's a, an interesting writer of people who are interested in politics, um, Drew, Drew Weston, who writes about the political brain. And he says the way people make up their mind about a politician is, do they like them? That's the most basic. Are they on my side? have they the cojones to do anything about it? And then last of all is, you know, all the stuff of politics. How and long I, did it take you to learn that? Coming with your economics uh, master's degree from Oxford. And well, I won't say background. 41 years. <laughs> I think I, I picked it up a bit quicker than that. But I mean, I suppose being on the doorstep twice a week for four hours a week um, does at least ground you in the how people are thinking about you. So the reason I've always kept that going is I think it does give you that emotional connection to people um, that does inform the sort of policy making that we might do. And I think it's a, it's a gap in politics. In fact, it's a gap I'm trying to fill now. I've set up for Fine Gael, um, a policy lab which tries to engage with people at a different level to your traditional way. So 
you know, it is emotional. And, you know, you've seen many excellent politicians just go down the tubes because they couldn't move. Hillary Clinton was a great example in that particular book of how her contest against Barack Obama, you know, he was the man who, you know, a lot of it seemed like froth, but he was undoubtedly, people felt this is a man on my side. You know, he, he will try and make a difference where she had all the worthy labour reform policies and social reform and justice policies but you know she couldn't connect uh, and, and that brings me to another point it was one made by Shane Ross in his book um, In Bed with the Blue Shirts I think it was called about his period in government with, and you were in the cabinet room along with him and towards the end of that book he says the blue shirts and this is kind of a, a term of affection well it is I think at this stage anyway for Fine Gael, mightn't have been at one stage he says the blue shirts have many admirable qualities they're mostly honest polite prudent and reliable. They also have a degree of condescension, a sense of a divine right to rule that would embarrass the House of Windsor. They are joined at the hip to Ireland's middle classes and large farmers. Compared to Fianna Fáil, they can be incredibly boring. Discuss. I suppose uh, he is a colourful writer. You'd have to say uh, Shane never misses an opportunity to um, to, to to turn colour. I think you know. I think he does point uh, a sort of weakness to in in Fine Gael from its very foundation. You know, in the early days, it was obsessed with you know the state and making it work and and getting through that very difficult formation. We never formed a proper political organisation, whereas Fianna Fáil in 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 opposition or not even in Parliament at the time set about building a base. Uh, so we traditionally haven't had that connection. Now, I think that changed with Garrett. I think Garrett was our leader who connected uh, and brought professionalism to the party, brought this, you know, much more focus on how people were feeling about things. But yeah, I think it's a weakness that, yeah. you know, we do, t- that's where we tend to go wrong in politics. And we, has he a point there about being joined at the hip to large farmers and the middle class? I mean, I'm thinking large farmers. Now, you're somebody who was in charge or, uh, in one of your ministries for climate change. And, you know, it's clear that and at the same time, we want to promote agriculture. And that was something that that government, when it came in in 2011, emphasised. We grew and we grew and we grew the national herd. But Fine Gael seems to have difficulty in accepting the arguments for reducing the national herd now. I mean, is that a mixture of your your connectedness or being joined at the hip with the large farmers and the emotional piece that you were referring to earlier? Uh, And the conflict between that and the analytics. I don't think so. I, 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 tell me any party that finds it easy to say to the farming sector that you should be reducing your herd or you should be, uh, you know, there's new regulations coming your way. I think the truth is farmers feel confused by the amount of stuff that's coming their way and I think all political parties are struggling with uh, how to manage this change. We still haven't seen a sort of an environmental change uh, carbon farming or if you like paying farmers for doing things that hasn't emerged it hasn't um, crystallised at European level so I think every party is struggling with how to manage climate transformation which is such an enormous issue so I don't think it's anything got to do with Fine Gael or you know the alleged connection to it surely has everything to do with Fine Gael well I think big farmers are what 20,000 people maybe at most uh, in a population of 5 million you know 
Fine Gael, we may not be doing as well as we'd like, but we still uh, have one million of those people supporting us. Uh, so we're not, a, you know, a, I think it's a caricature to try and say we're the party. OK, are, well, just... And that's the sort of thing our, our political opponents would say. Yeah, but do, does <clears throat> the size of the national herd need to come down? Well, I think you have to look at what, how do we reduce carbon? We don't have to eliminate carbon in, in the food sector. It's not one that you go to net zero because we still need food. But I think you do need to develop strategies to manage that. Now, Chagas have a pathway as to how that can be done. The difficulty is you need close to 100% uptake of many of the instruments that they're they are proposing. Uh, and I think we've struggled to, to get forestry off the ground as a, a credible alternative. We haven't yet got the sort of environmental, paying for environmental services. So I, we're not alone in this. The, different, the dif- difference for Ireland from other countries is that agricultural emissions represent a third of our emissions. Um, whereas you go to other countries, uh, Netherlands, you know, have a huge problem. Uh, yeah, and, and then so on the... No, no, and, they, and they now have a Farmers' Party emerging and they're, they're struggling to, to meet their, their requirements. And on the nitrates thing, recently we saw Charlie McConlogue, the Agriculture Minister, stoutly defending and telling farmers very directly, look, they're going to have to reduce the amount in line with the directive, the derogation has gone. And being seen to have been thrown under the bus to an extent by the Taoiseach because, you know, he said, oh, well, we'll invite the commissioner over for talks. And that was what he said to the farmers when they when they met him. Um, and that was seen as effectively throwing McConlogue under the combine. I, I wouldn't see it that way. I mean, I think we are trying to manage a very difficult uh, situation. We have, as I say, you know, agriculture is such a big part of our emissions. Other European countries aren't facing this. So we do have to have the understanding of the European Commission to help us manage that. The Commission haven't yet evolved a carbon farming model that we could turn around and say to farming farmers, here's another way in which you can see, you know, a prosperous farm in 10 years time. So the key for for all political parties is to be able to convince farmers of a pathway to prosperity in 10 years time uh, whereas I think they feel that everything is coming at them uh, and there isn't a, a path forward so I think trying to focus this in as this is a particular Fine Gael problem like uh, the credibility of Oh it's probably a Fianna Fáil problem and too And it's a Sinn Féin problem and it's you know there is there's very few parties who are articulating a way a credible way forward uh, on the climate front It's understating the the difficulty of the political challenge here to try and say this is you know Fine Gael yeah, is and weak need about uh, climate I don't think that's true at all But if you look at something say and again you had I think Again, in hindsight, and at the time it was seen as brave and correct. Uh, you have a pretty good record, say, as an opposition finance spokesman and reading what Fianna Fáil were doing, and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, you know, you, you called out, for instance, their reliance on, was it 25% of the funds had to come from the construction centre sector to, to, to fund government expenditure in, in the early noughties. You had warnings about benchmarking and what it was costing the, the exchequer, and that was, if you like, going against the unions and going against the consensus that had built up up from the, the late 80s, really, of government working in ha- working hand in love with them and having that, uh, what Hawhey called the prolonged period of industrial peace, which brought a lot of progress. But you went against the grain on a lot of that. Absolutely. I mean, you, you know, social partnership worked for some years, but eventually it became uh, so fossilised and rigid uh, that it was only 
pursuing narrow interests when much wider interests were at stake. And it was, you know, benchmarking was a mistake. It was the wrong direction to go. I think social partnership had outlived its usefulness from a consumer point of view. It undermined consumer interests. It, you know, the democratic control of uh, of the Dáil and Shannon were being undermined by deals being made elsewhere. And it wasn't in, you know, serving our economic prosperity uh, any longer. So, you know, I, I pointed that out and, um, you know, the decline in our export market share, the reliance on construction, these were things that were dysfunctional in yes, our economy. Yes, but when it came <coughs> to election time, particularly, say, in 2007, Fine Gael and indeed Labour were every bit as much on this side engaged in shall we call it, uh, an old, to, to use an old phrase, auction politics. I mean, you weren't following through at election time for perfectly understandable reasons on the warnings that you had issued in the course of that doll. I don't think that's accurate. I mean, we offered uh, an approach to politics that was going to be much more prudent. From my point of view, I think I proved my value when we came back into government in 2011. And I think, you know, the sort of skills I, I deployed in, in enterprise and subsequently in other departments um, you know, as yeah, to well, how well, you what, make a, a system was, work. What was that like? Because you had an overwhelming victory. Fine Gael, 76 seats, Labour, I think 37, a massive majority, even bigger, I think, than Fianna Fáil had with the, the Labour Party back in the previous times. But the Troika were in control of the, the purse strings. Uh, what was it like just going into that cabinet and into that government with the country in hock? And, or, you know, we were, we were basically depending, to, to use that phrase of Morgan Kelly, the UCD economist, relying on the kindness of strangers to run our affairs. Yeah, no, it was a very tough time. I mean, the sort of decisions that were, had to be made then would be unthinkable now, you know, cutting cutting welfare payments of different uh, descriptions, making it harder to get things, you know, increasing tax, cutting public pay. You know, these were, uh, you know, they would be un- unthinkable. And, you know, they were very courageous decisions and they, you know, fundamentally re- reset our economy. And our success subsequently has been because we made those decisions early in the term of that government. I mean, if you go back to earlier ones in the 82 to 87 uh, government, I think the mistake that the coalition then made was that they they let, waited too long to confront some of the underlying problems and then didn't have the the sunnier uplands uh, you know, in, in, in which to face a, a, an election. So Somebody to, who served in Cabinet with you, and I won't name them, uh, said to me that Richard was a good minister, but he would have been an even better Secretary General of a department because he knows he's into policy. He knows how things work. Would you think there's a point, a valid point being made there? Well, my Secretary General uh, in in Enterprise, John Murphy, when he retired, he <laughs> he said that I could have been a, a good Secretary General. I had given a speech saying he could have been a great politician because he could. He had a, 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 an encyclopedic knowledge of politics, uh, but he turned the tables <laughs> and said I, that I could have been a great uh, Secretary General. Uh, and I'd say there's, there's an element of truth in it. But on the other hand, I think what politics uh, brings, which is really important, is it brings you know, the capacity to have the teeth of the president on your side, which you know no Secretary General can achieve. But it also 
you are articulating that but ambition. But sometimes you have to take on as a politician a very powerful Secretary General. I mean, I think you might have had a spat, was it, with Robert Watt uh, over the, uh, the the broadband? Uh, you, you know, yeah, he, he wasn't he, he wasn't Secretary General in my department. No, he was time. he was in an even more powerful department, wasn't he, in the Department of uh, Public Expenditure? He he was. Yeah. No, this was a debate about broadband, um, and uh, you know. He made no secret either in private or indeed uh, it seemed to get to the newspapers about his strenuous opposition to this uh, investment. Of what, um, three billion or something? Th- three billion. Uh, and was, in... that a, was that a motion winning out over the analytics then? No, no, that was like the evidence has proven since COVID, uh, the benefit to cost ratio of that project has doubled. The The net benefits have increased massively. It's a really important project. If we want to see um, you know, rural-urban divide broken, you cannot conceive of uh, breaking that divide without a, a broadband system in every part of the country. It was a, a, a very uh, visionary uh, decision and I take my hat off to both Pascal uh, and uh, the Taoiseach um, and yourself I suppose and as well for pushing ahead for with pushing it. ahead with it and, but you know I, I brought the case I fought hard for the case and, but, I, mean, and I think w- we've, we've been vindicated what do you make I mean was that a case of a, a civil servant getting above his station well, I think the Department of Finance had opposed free education, as you know, if you go back into the annals of time. Uh, and I don't think many people would say that... Uh, and free, free educa- travel, to go back to Mr. Hyde's uh, time uh, even uh, further. Indeed. Or no, sorry, around about the same time. But, you know, I don't think anyone could argue. I, I suppose you can say that's the job of someone who's managing the purse strings to be uh, to take on and challenge ministers but in the event I think ministers made the right decision I was really proud to be part of it and I think you know in a decade's time people will be like and we say Thatcher of free education famously said advisors it? advise and ministers decide uh, was how it, it's run because you're the one who has to face, Ultimately, face the voters uh, speaking about facing the voters Fine Gael didn't have a great election the last time there was an expectation that you were heading for opposition but then along came COVID and the numbers fell a certain way would the party benefit from a period in opposition now? I don't think so I mean you, you we were just talking about that long period in opposition from 97 when you know it, the party did not thrive I think the party does thrive in government um, I think we're a party who thrives in managing conflict uh, you know, managing turning points in our our within within you know within politics, I think that's what we thrive on trying to solve issues. I don't think we do particularly well, you know, being the you know the punch and Judy uh, of attacking a government. So I I think you know we're right to try to continue in 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 government. I think the next government will be you know there'll be real a real decision to be made about the future direction of of the country and I I think, you know, the present government have a very strong case to make. I know, but Leo Varadkar in the um, series that we made uh, two tribes uh, about the civil war politics said he would would resign from Fine Gael rather than lead the party into a coalition with Sinn Féin. Is that a, a view that you would be as strong about? 
Well, I think the, the, I won't be contesting at the next election, so I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't make uh, statements like that. But I think there are very real issues that people will ha- make their mind up about. I mean, I, I genuinely don't see an enterprise strategy coming from Sinn Féin uh, yeah, at but a you time see, Richard, when we need one. I remember interviewing Peter Barry for Morning Ireland after the 92 election, and he was vigorously suggesting that because of their record, you know, with the official IRA and everything, the democratic left, because of their roots, their antecedents. There is no way Fine Gael could be in government with them. And before the end of that doll, because of the numbers, as you explained, they changed and Fianna Fáil were, they fell out with Labour. Fine Gael were in government with them. The numbers will decide, surely. Well, I think I see an election as much more a contest of ideas and about the future of the country. And then uh, after and the votes are counted, uh, well, after the votes you count, put a government another, together. That's another day's work. Um, but I think there's really serious issues to be decided. Um, you know, I, I don't believe for a number, like I don't believe in Sinn Féin's enterprise policy. I don't believe in their housing policy. Uh, so, you know, there's... But you said all that about Fianna Fáil. I think it's much more fundamentally different. I mean, Sinn Féin, for example, on housing, believe in freezes and, you know, absolutely creating the impossibility of a rental sector to attract new investment. You can't solve our housing crisis that way. They believe in, you know, exclusivity on public land, only public buildings on public land. We need diverse communities. That's going back to a housing policy that failed in the 60s. I know, 60s. but, but so, th- you these know, are these policy are, things that you can argue the toss on. But I mean, but to, to are, what extent would the shadow of the gunman and the way they run their party be a, 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 an overriding consideration? I think that remains. I think there remains a, a doubt as to how leaders are selected about who has access to you know important information about uh, I think that remains as an issue that Sinn Féin will have to deal with and I think any government any party who goes into coalition with them will have concerns on that front and you know so it is it's an outstanding issue that they have to address. You are 10 years younger than Joe Biden who's contesting the next US presidential That's election. That's what I keep telling my as, wife. <laughs> as of now, you're, I think you're seven, eight years perhaps younger than Donald Trump, who certainly intends running again. I mean, is there not another election in you? And you know, surely you're good enough to run a department if that were to be the, the will of the electorate. I think you have to get off the stage before people start booing. <laughs> and I've been very luck- lucky in recent times. I mean, the press have been pretty generous to me. It's like reading your own obituary. You know, the, the Irish never speak uh, ill of the dead. And I think I've I've benefited a little bit to, to that. People have said nice things about me, both in public and in private. So I think you ha- it's good to decide to, to leave when you're still... Well, what are you going to do, though? I'll do more cooking. I'll do more staycating, like my lovely uh, video that <laughs> plunged into great success. I'll be swimming in the open sea. And I'll be out cycling and I'll be drinking coffee in all the lovely spots in my constituency. That, that, that video that you mentioned, it showed you with you know, sort of the, the famous abs. You come out of the, the waters of Dollymount and, uh, you know, sh- well, I won't say you showed up, but it, it was obvious that you had a six pack. And uh, <laughs> people said, my God, who is this guy? You know, And, uh, you know, I, I think the words swooning was (laughs) used to describe the reaction in some quarters in Leinster House. 
were you pleasant? You must have been more than pleasantly surprised, pleasantly taken aback. I think it proved that all I needed was to get rid of the handlers who were holding me back <laughs> all those years <laughs> and get out and strut my stuff. I mean, it's it, like, you know, the, the one and a half million door knocks, the five million leaflets. I mean, you know, think of the effort, the, the, the person hours that went, to, went into all of that. <laughs> I know, um, I know. And uh, then this thing comes out of nowhere and, you know, the cliche is goes viral. It goes as quickly so there's no there's nothing left after it so you know I think that politics has become very well ephemeral in that way old style politicians like me who believe in evidence based policy making were, were quite challenged I think in, yeah, um, in communication terms but the one question I didn't get to ask you or should have perhaps because I suspect it might have been the department that you really were happiest in or very happy in anyway was ed- education do, do, do you think you got much done there? I did. There were some great successes, like, uh, you know, I think the baptism barrier, ending the baptism barrier. I think we sowed the seeds for what Simon Harris is now doing with apprenticeships, you know, a massive expansion in the range of choice. But there were disappointments, too. You know, I, I would have liked to see reform of the Leaving Certificate proceed much, much more vigorously. Um, you know, it, it has, you know, been a bit derailed by, by I think, AI is the, the latest thing that is holding it up. Uh, but I think, you know, during COVID, we saw you could change the way students were assessed and the roof didn't fall in. You know, I I would like to have been in a position to push on reform because, you know, when the OECD are telling us we're educating children to be second class robots, I think they <laughs> described it as we have a problem. And I think, you know, we do have to f- face down some of the interests who don't want to be disturbed and it is a difficult road Uh, I I don't deny that You you spoke earlier uh, in this conversation about uh, the influence of the unions and you felt that that was that 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 had got too strong I want to put to you something Charlie Flanagan said and he's leaving politics as well Uh, not quite as long a career as you but uh, close enough to it and he he says I I haven't suddenly become a raving right-wing extremist bigot but I do find that the plurality of voices long evident in Leicester House are not as evident now there's a dangerous intolerance of any view that's not being pushed by vociferous, well-financed and well-funded non-government organisations. Now, he didn't want to be specific about what ones he was referring to, but he said, I've said to colleagues that I would have had more influence on government policy if I was a middle-ranking official with an NGO than I have as a government backbencher, and I regret that. Just a different form of the same kind of external influence. I wouldn't go as far as what Charlie's saying. I think, you know, politics has undoubtedly changed. I think there's far more polarisation in politics um, and less people who see politics about resolving conflicts. A lot of people see it about creating conflicts. And I think that has been driven partly by social media, which creates these capsules within which people, you know, nurture their own belief and don't listen to any alternative voices. Uh, And I think that's really bad for politics. And I think we have to try to find ways of of creating spaces where people can debate controversial things in ways that are more respectful. Now, I think the Citizens' Assembly is 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 a very good model that Ireland has used for some of these very difficult issues. Um, and I think, you know, that's 
behind what we've been doing. Yeah, with our he, he says, now. and and again, the Citizens Assembly was was um, you know influential in this as well, I suppose, in various ways. But he says the liberal agenda has accelerated in recent years in a way that causes me discomfort. It's about euthanasia, a very radical ideological transgender agenda, commercial surrogacy, and a move towards liberalised abortion, completely different from that which I voted for five years ago. I, I can see what he's saying. Like there are pressures uh, for change continuously, but I, I, I don't share his belief that you know politics is failing. I think, I think politics has to discover new ways so that we can create those spaces where these real conflicts, and they are real conflicts, can be talked about respectfully and solutions found. So you know you can't rail against these sort of developments in social media and, and patterns. You have to try to respond and f- create better ways of doing things. And that's where I, I see, I can understand the, 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 the frustration that Charlie's expressing there. Uh, but I think we've to, to look at things that are working and try to build them up. But if you think of the way your own party has changed uh since you went in and since he went in and, you know, he, he would have talked about how he differed radically from his late father, Oliver J. Flanagan, um, that there were there was a difference of views on a lot of things in Fine Gael and that seems to have just faded away now. In and Fine indeed Gael. in the other parties too. Oh, no, it? I don't think, no, I think there is a very lively difference uh, within Fine Gael, even on some of those, you know, big, uh, I don't know whether you, what you describe those. Social issues? Great, culture war issues, some of them, you know, they've become more than social issues. I think that's, that's the difficulty, I think. What I find uh, in the social media world is that people portray things in such an extreme way that you're either for or against us. It's very binary politics that's emerging, where that's not the sort of politics that either I or Charlie uh, entered into. And I think the challenge is to recreate that ground where you can resolve these issues. And would you say that it's a, going to be a much more difficult thing for politicians into the future, you know, having a life and, and, and having a career with all of what's coming at them instantaneously on social media than it was for you? I do. It's really difficult, particularly for women. I, 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 the hope is I, that the pendulum will swing back and that, you know, partly through regulation, uh, we'll manage social media better, but partly through consumers recognising that a lot of this stuff is leading them nowhere. But in the short term, you know, we see politics in the US, politics in the UK, politics in several countries in Europe taking directions that are built on intolerance and, you know, exploiting um, you know, feelings of being left out, not to resolve or come up with better solutions, but to just simply, you know, thrive on, on, on this conflict that can be created. And that that's a really bad direction for, for politics to head in. Would you encourage any of your sons and daughters, I think you've got four, uh, to, to enter politics? And do you think any of them might or will? I don't think any of them will. I, I wouldn't discourage them. I wouldn't, I would put no pressure on anyone to run for politics. But I do believe that politics is a fantastic life. Like you can achieve change that you can't achieve in any other enterprise you might take on. You know, it has its price. It has a price for your family other than for yourself. But, you know, I still think it's a noble profession. And, you know, I wouldn't... I'd do another 40 years if, if I had it in me. Richard Bruton, uh, you have lived in interesting times. It's been a very interesting time talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us on the Insights Podcast. 
To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.